Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. It is June 14th, and today I will be talking healthcare with my usual partner in crime, Todd Campbell, who is calling in from New Hampshire. Todd, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Christine, do you know any good roofers? I do not. I know a bar in D.C. called Roofers Union, and that's about it. That's, I think, where I'm heading uh, soon then after uh, discovering that I need to do a lot of roof work. <laughs> oh, that's never any fun. No, no. But, you know, I'm just, you know, all morning I distracted myself from from the crisis at hand to to research one of our favorite topics. And I'm guessing it wasn't roofs. No, it was biosimilars. <laughs> yes. So that is today's topic indeed. And it's something that we mention all the time on the show, but it's been a while since we actually focused on the space. And so Todd and I thought that it was time for an update. So I figure we will do a little bit of background first, just in case you didn't listen to whatever episode it was where we originally talked about biosimilars and explained what they were. And then we would do said updates and uh, really get into where investors might want to look in the space. So let's first take a minute to talk in general about how important generic drugs are. Right. Like, why is it that we spend time talking about it on the show, right? What what are they and what's the market opportunity for investors? And one of the re- ways that I thought that it might be helpful to explain this to investors is to take kind of like a case study and say, okay, well, let's take a look at how big the market for generic drugs has gotten. And maybe that will help shine some light on why we think that this whole movement towards biosimilars, which you know we'll get into more in depth, but you know consider them to be like generic versions of biologics. We'll, we'll explain that more in a minute. In 1998, Teva Pharmaceutical, which is the largest maker of generic drugs in the world, was generating out a billion dollars uh, roughly in sales. By 2001, their sales had doubled to two billion. And in 2016, their sales clocked in at nearly 22 billion. So you've gone from 98 billion to 2016 at about 22 billion. And similarly, their net income has gone from, you know, like a 70 million annualized run rate back in 98 to over 5 billion today. And the reason behind that, of course, has been uh, largely widespread adoption and use of generic drugs, which are copycats of uh, some of the you know branded drugs that you might be familiar with or might be, even be taking, like uh, say cholesterol lowering drugs. And what we're talking about with biosimilars is the ability to create now, for lack of a better term, generic versions of highly complex drugs that up until now has not been able to be done. And theoretically, that's gonna open up a huge opportunity that could very well be Tevisized. Yeah, so this is pretty cool. And in order to understand it, you need to understand that there are two different types of drugs. There are the more uh, simple drugs that you can make a, a quick chemical generic of. And then you have your biologics. And a biologic is a drug that's manufactured inside of a living thing, such as like a, a plant cell or an animal cell. And they're enormous molecules. They're very large, very complex. They are very difficult to make. 
And because of that, they're also very difficult to reproduce. You actually can't get an exact replica of a biologic drug if you don't make it inside that same cell. So that's why you get the word biosimilar for these types of generic drugs that are trying to be copycat versions of the larger, more complex biologics. In biosimilars, you know, while not exact copies, the FDA won't approve them unless you can demonstrate in clinical trials that they're as effective and that they're as safe. So it's not like it's a uh, uh, um, you know completely the same or completely different, but you still have to be able to prove the efficacy and the safety before you can get them on the market. And again, up until very recently, uh, there was really no pathway, no even way of getting a drug through clinical trials to the FDA, having the FDA uh, pass it through its gauntlet and putting its stamp on their approval. That really didn't even, that pathway for, toward approval didn't even uh, really come into being until Obamacare was passed. Right. And so that's in 2010. This is the Affordable Care Act actually laid out exactly what a company would have to do in order to get approval from the FDA for a, a, a biosimilar. And the market potential, um, what's made it so, I guess, important for these drug makers to focus on biosimilars now that they have this path pathway, and, you know, just to go backwards one more one step quickly, is that biological drugs, because of their complexity, they've also very, very efficacious. They work very, very well. And because of their complexity, they command premium pricing. So over the course of the last decade or so, you've seen this shift in drug development away from the simple uh, chemical structured small molecule drugs to these much more complex and potentially lucrative biologics. And now with this pathway in place, thanks to um, the Affordable Care Act, you've seen uh, a, a host of companies, and we're going to talk about a couple of them in a moment, um, you've seen a host of companies really ramp up their development of these drugs in anticipation of a flood of patent expirations that are going to be coming in the course of the next five or ten years as a lot of these drugs that were, were approved in the early and mid-2000s lose their patent exclusivity. To put some numbers behind that, the United States spent $323 billion in 2016 on prescription medicines, and biologics are estimated to account for 28% of drug spending by 2020. And there was one analysis that predicted that biosimilars could deliver up to $44 billion in savings to the U.S. healthcare system by 2024. And when you consider how much saving on drug costs is in you know, the, the news today and in people's minds, you can see why there's a lot of buzz around these drugs and the potential that they have for reshaping the way that we do healthcare spending. So That's a great point, Christine, because, you know, you look at small molecule drugs and just thinking about the cholesterol fighting drugs, right? Maybe they cost like a couple hundred dollars per month. These biologics, they can command, you know, prices, if you're talking about oncology, $10,000 per month or higher. And, you know, biologics, as a result, they may not account for the lion's share in, um, in prescription volume. But I mean, you're talking about they represent, you know, a, a third of, of the drug market and growing, like you said, with market share of 28 percent. You know, market share for biologics back in 2002 was only 10 or 11 percent. So it's been very dramatic growth. And like you said, with pricing front and center, if you've got a drug like, say, Avi's Humira, and it costs, you know, 50, 60 thousand dollars a year and you've got the potential to have another drug launch at 20 percent less. Well, you add that up across 
you know, million patients, and you're talking about significant savings to the system. Exactly. And so, because those savings are so substantial, you find that timing is actually super important here. And that leads us to the the news item that we wanted to share with you guys, which has everything to do with the timing of how quickly the biosimilar makers are able to get their drugs to market. Right. When the Affordable Care Act was passed, it included language that created this pathway that could get biosimilars to market. But they also wanted to um, get buy-in from branded drug manufacturers. So in the language, they included a 180-day window. And up until this week, that window was assumed to begin um, on the date of the drug's approval. So you couldn't launch a biosimilar until 180 days following FDA approval. That has changed now because the Supreme Court weighed in unanimously and said, nope, you don't have to wait that extra six months. Right. So this case was Sandoz v. Amgen. Uh, Sandoz is a subsidiary of Novartis. They were bickering over this 180-day window. And uh, Sandoz said, so how this window works is that the biosimilar company has to tell the original brand name biologic drug maker that they are planning on launching their drug, their, their copycat drug. And then they have to wait for this window after they've given notice before they can actually start to, manu- or, uh, to market it. And so Sandoz, what they did was they let uh, Amgen know and then assumed that 180 days later they would be good to go post-approval. But the thing is, they didn't actually wait until they got the approval to give Amgen the notification. And so then you get these two humongous companies bickering over what to me seems like a very small window, but there's so much money and tension behind it. I mean, not just for these two drugs, but because of the implications for the broader biosimilar industry. Right. I mean, the drug specifically they're talking about is Sandoz Sart. How do you pronounce this? Sarsexio? Sarsio? Zarxio? Z-A-R-X-I-O. Right. Which is a um, a biosimilar to the anemia drug Nupagen, which is made by Amgen. And Nupagen is one of the top-selling biologics in oncology. Um, It generates out, you know, sales of of in the billion-dollar territory uh, plus. Um, and following the launch of generic biosimilars, okay, um, sales have fallen dramatically. They're now tracking at less than a billion. And in the first quarter, um, sales came in at 213 million, which was down 31%. So you're not talking about chump change. And that's why uh, you, you said earlier, um, there's a lot at stake. You're talking about drugs that represent billions of dollars per year. And if you can get that you know, drug on the market six months sooner, you're potentially talking about being able to get 500 million, a billion, two billion, depending on what drug you're talking about in additional sales. So yes, while they're talking about this one drug and how it may, you know, and, and its competition with Amgen's Nupagen, it really, the implications of this are far bigger far bigger because you're talking about, again, tens of billions of dollars uh, in patent expirations on biologics that are coming up quick. Right. So just for reference, Express Scripts, which is the the PBM that we talk about, the pharmacy benefits manager, all the time on the show, estimated that the U.S. likely wasted more than $45 million for every month that just this one biosimilar was delayed from coming to market. That's $45 million every single month just for Sandoz's Zarxio. 
it's it's just insane how much money we're talking about here. Right, and that's only you know with a brand with a, a price tag that's about I think it's fifteen to twenty percent less. Uh, right. than the brand night. Yeah, and that, that's brought. kind of an interesting detail as well because normally generic drugs are priced way, way, way cheaper than their original branded counterparts, but that's not true with biologic drugs and their biosimilar counterparts. And that's just it goes to speak to that complexity and you know, you mentioned earlier that the biosimilar makers need to run clinical trials and they need to prove all of these things to the FDA as opposed to just saying, hey, look, we chemically duplicated a drug. It's the same. There you go. It's much more complex. And so you don't get as heavy of a discount. But in dollar terms, considering how much more expensive biologic drugs are, it's, I would guess, probably pretty comparable. Yeah. You know what's also interesting about that is that, you know, the there's there's this whole question of when is it appropriate to use it? Like if you look at old style generic drugs entering the market, the brand drug manufacturer would usually just say, yeah, I'm not gonna even sell the drug anymore because you know you just launched something that's 80 to 90% cheaper and frankly, it's just not worth it to me. I'm moving on to the next idea. I'm gonna focus somewhere else. That doesn't seem like it's gonna be the case with biosimilars. You know, It's not like Amgen's gonna all of a sudden say, I'm no longer gonna be selling Nubigen. So now doctors are going to be saying, okay, well, do I keep using Nupigen because I have a decade plus of experience in, 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 in using it and I feel comfortable with how my patients react to it? Or am I going to embrace this lower cost drug, uh, save my patients some money, um, even though I don't really have that same level of confidence? Because again, you're not talking about the same exact drug. I mean, as you notice, these two drugs have two separate names, right? They're not going just by the generic dream. Like if you walked into a Rite Aid to get a generic script filled of Lipitor, it all comes as under the same name, same generic name. These have different names because they're biosimilar, not exact copies. So yes, that's, and it's that's not even just it's not even just the consider. branded name that's different. Like when you look at the the chemical compound name, that also is a little bit different. It's it's the original, and then it has a hyphen, and it has SNDZ at the end of it for the biosimilar for Sandoz. It's our version of this. Right, and that's to prevent accidental replacement of that. You know, before you would have to request the brand name versus the generic. In this case, you actually have to request both. Right? I mean, either or, uh, specifically. And I think that one of the other questions this raises is not so much maybe in oncology drugs where you're not using it for you know forever, like a chronic disease necessarily, um, but it does bring up the whole question of switching. And maybe that will apply more with autoimmune disease drugs. You know, when we're talking about things like Remicade biosimilars or Humira biosimilars, things for psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, where you're receiving treatment throughout a lifetime. Will you switch your patient if they're already controlled uh, under the brand name to this new biosimilar? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how likely they are to to do to switch patients. Um, could new patient starts more likely end up on the biosimilar? I think yes. So I think that the big opportunity initially for biosimilars is in new patient starts, um, with switching being maybe smaller impact than it would have was historically with the um, with the small molecule drugs. That makes a lot of sense. And I also 
have a hunch that doctors will be more embracing of biosimilars as time goes on and as it becomes a more common part of the drug universe. I think at first, even the word biosimilar is a little bit daunting. You know, it's it's similar. What does that mean? It's not the same. But I think as you have more new patient starts on these drugs, doctors will start to embrace them, see that they do actually have the same mechanism of action and efficacy and safety and all that. And so I'd imagine that years and years down the road, they'll be accepted at a much higher rate than they are right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at and, and that that would follow. Maybe the track won't be identical if you overlay them. But if you go back to what happened in, in Teva and with generic drugs in the late 90s through through today, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but it was solid, steady growth. You won over more prescription share every year. As you said, doctors become more comfortable using them and prescribing them. And, and you're always going to have a holdout of people that demand the brand name. True, true. And, you know, we also have to recognize, too, that it may not be smooth sailing for all of these biosimilars that are in development to actually make it to market. I mean, they're, you know, you, you as from an investing standpoint, you're, you're now excited about the prospect of biosimilars, right? You want to run out and you want to buy all of these biosimilar manufacturers because of this huge market opportunity. And we're but, about to temper your expectations. <laughs> Yeah, temper your expectations because another piece of news came out this week that was also interesting on biosimilars and just showed that there is still some some risk associated with um, with trafficking in, in the ones that are at least in the clinical stages of developing these drugs. So this one is a company called Coherus Biosciences. Their ticker is CHRS. And they received a CRL, which is a complete response letter that is what all biotech investors should fear when you are invested in a company that has an application outstanding with the FDA, that basically more or less is a rejection, but it takes different forms sometimes. And the CRL contents, you don't have to share them as a company, but in this case, Coherus did share the contents of their rejection letter, and they said that it actually had nothing to do with the drug's efficacy. It was just the FDA saying that we can't approve this yet because we need you to run a little bit more data and we need some, some manufacturing issues to be fixed. And so, uh, Coherus, which has created a copycat version of a different Amgen drug, similar but different, called Nulasta. Um, right now, we'll not be able to get that drug to market yet, but if you listen to their conference call, they sound extremely optimistic that they will be able to right the minor wrongs that the FDA pointed out and be able to get the application resubmitted by the end of the year and hopefully get this drug to market by 2018. Yeah, that, that might be a little bit, it, it might be optimistic, I'm not sure um, whether or not uh, that timeline, they'll be able to deliver on that timeline. Um, you know, the, the reality is that you, you want to make sure that every single dot is, I is dotted, all your T's are crossed when you submit this information. And, you know, some of the bigger companies like, you know, Sandoz and uh, and even actually Amgen, which is also developing biosimilars in an odd, odd uh, situation there. Which but, we should come but, back to that because that is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting. They've got their hand, their hands in both pots, or however that saying goes. <laughs> their feet in both states. I don't know, but um, you know, essentially what we're talking about again with Coharis is this is a pure play, small cap, uh, biosimilar drug maker, which gets you all excited because it's pure play, right? So you know, lots of opportunity. But you know, you also have to say that they probably they maybe they don't have the same resources and the same experience dealing with the FDA, getting drugs through the FDA gauntlet. And obviously, there there's some some kind of a stumble 
occurred uh, with this submission. And what's really distressing from an investing st investor's standpoint in Coharis is that you know they had hoped to get an approval this year and get that drug now with that removal of the 180 day delay get that drug on the market this year. Now, Nulasta is a long version, long lasting version of Nupagen, right? Which we talked about already today. Um, so many more doctors have shifted there to, from Nupagen to Nulasta. And as a result, that drug racks up over a billion dollars per quarter in global sales, a billion per quarter. Yeah. So you're talking about so much money that now investors have to say, ah, we were hoping that we would be able to carve away market share this year. Now we don't know. Now they are going, like you said, they're going to meet with the FDA. They're going to discuss all this information, but we don't know a timeline specifically yet uh, on being able to turn around and, and get that data back uh, in front of the regulator for approval. Let's assume that they're able to do that by the end of this year or maybe early next year. And let's assume then that a decision comes three, six, uh, months after that that resubmission, then maybe you're getting this drug on the market in the middle of 2018, uh, more likely towards the tail end of 2018. But again, there's uncertainty, right? And the market hates uncertainty. I guess the, the general takeaway here is that Coheris remains a high-risk stock. It's working on some really exciting things that could be very big someday because it's focused on biosimilars. But uh, there are some question marks today that there weren't last week. Because this was their most advanced candidate for a drug, they dropped 24% on Tuesday on the news. And you mentioned that this is a volatile stock. The stock is, in general, down 44% just from the beginning of 2017. This is, if you compare it to the IBB, that's up double digits, probably around 11%. So, like you said, a very volatile stock, but an interesting one because it is a pure play. And in addition to this one drug, I believe they have two others that are advancing and are just a little bit farther behind. So, definitely one to keep an eye on. Speaking of stock yeah. fluctuations, I thought it was interesting that Amgen, despite being involved in both of these news items, their stock was essentially flat. And I think that part of that, well, part of that is just because they have so much going on that they're not a pure play in biosimilars. But I think the other part of it is that, you, as you mentioned, they have their hands in both pots, or whatever that phrase is, um, and they're making biosimilars themselves. So, what is good news for biosimilars could also be good news for Amgen. Right, they've got 10 biosimilars in development, and those drugs target some of the, 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 the biggest selling of the biologics that are losing patent expiration over the coming five to 10 years. So, yes, they may take a hit once well, they will take a hit. I think it's inevitable that a new new last biosimilar launches, right? We're it's, just talking it's 21 percent of their revenue. It, right. So you know they're going and to your point, that's probably why the stock was flat, right? Because you have puts and takes. There's upside associated with the delay in launching a competitor to Nulasta, uh, but there's also an offset there from the potential to launch their own biosimilar drugs and potentially rack up billions of dollars in sales there too. Yeah, and we will definitely be keeping our eyes on any further updates. Todd, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Christine. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!